Hey everyone, this is Marley Silverbrand with uh, The Water Cooler. Uh, just preluding the start of this podcast by just thanking Ari Costa for coming on this podcast. Uh, I'm on my way to work right now in case you want to know what th- what that sound is, but uh, I just fig- figured I'd come on here and just kind of give you a little debriefer and a little prelude for the, for the podcast. Uh, I just want to thank him for just being so gracious and with his time and chatting with chatting with me about his career and his upcoming films and just uh and just how great of a guy he is uh i wish him all the success and just yeah i hope you enjoy the episode uh other than that like another check-in on like my mental health throughout the throughout the year of 2020 i think uh this is uh shaping it's the year is obviously getting better you obviously still have donald trump like not accepting the results of the election, even though he's lost by over 6 million votes. And just, and I live in California, obviously, if you haven't figured that out by now. Uh, We're shutting down again. Uh, There's a curfew out now, so it's just like, I don't know. I just keep plugging away with this podcast and just see see what I can do with with everything uh, going on. Uh, Yeah. Uh, other than that, I don't really have, I have a few episodes planned after this, after this episode. Obviously, uh, you have the Prestige, uh, movie club podcast that I'm doing with Cameron. Uh, so look forward to that. That should be releasing or roughly around 4 p.m. today on November 24th. Uh, should have a few more interviews coming out. And, uh, I'm just experimenting with this podcast. Thank you for, uh joining me on this journey of 20 episodes hopefully for 20 more uh other than that i uh, hope you enjoy this episode of uh, ari costa uh, just my discussion i had with him um anyways have a good day stay safe wear a mask social distance and you have a good day Welcome to the Water Cooler Podcast, episode 20. My name is Marley Silverbrand, and today on the podcast, I'm joined by a very special and and really good acquaintance. Uh, we've met at, num- at numerous film festivals, well, really just one. He's got a film coming out, Mosul, on Netflix on November 26th. It's Ari Costa. Ari, how are you doing today? Good, man. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I always like to start off the podcast and just... Like especially the way this year has gone, I always like to check in with you. Like, how how are you doing? <laughs> like, how's your mental state doing? How are you surviving through uh, uh, stay at home orders? So yeah, it's not you know it's not too bad. All things considered, I like to think that like I was sort of uniquely suited for this in the sense that you know some people really thrive on you know personal connection. I love it, but I don't I don't need it face to face. So you know the working from home thing kind of takes away some of the stress of and anxiety of li- of being in an office environment and sort of 
allows me to recharge, but I, I do think it's getting to the point where it's sort of enough is enough. So I wouldn't mind being around people again, but you know, it's allowed me to sort of hunker down and focus on work and personal relationships. So yeah, it's been all right. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. Like my roommate and I, that, that I'm sharing a space with right now, like when we first got the stay at home order, like back in March, I believe we're basically just like, well, we stay at home regardless, work on our projects. So it's like, Having the government tell us to stay at home, it's like, well, we're already doing this. And I feel, yeah, and, and with the newly imposed curfew, I'm like, all right, this doesn't really change anything. Yeah, I just found it like a really great opportunity to like just focus on like my projects and stuff like that. Working on this podcast and getting 20 episodes out, like that's... That's amazing. Yeah, uh, I think I had like a really great graphic design instructor like back in school. She always says that we do our best work when we are constrained. Mm-hmm. And I totally agree with that, especially now with when, when we, we're constrained to like these four walls. Like some of our best content comes from just being constrained. But For sure. And you'll, you'll find that in filmmaking as well. You know, mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, a lot of times the limitations just create other sort of creative solves, but that end up sort of elevating the project in a way you hadn't previously thought about. Right. But in case the, the listeners don't already know, like Ari and I met like, about seven years ago and we like i I think it was leader of the pack that you first brought to it's a film festival Mm -hmm. which i absolutely loved and i fell fell in love with it like the first first time i saw it and then i ever since then like i was just everything that comes out that has your name attached like i I wanted to see and (laughs) uh, i guess like a good thing too is that you worked on like other than leader of the pack you worked on a, a little tiny independent film called uh like avengers is that how you say that's it? That's the one. Yeah, that's the one that a lot of people aren't aware of, you know? Yeah, it's a little tiny independent film. But Ari, t- like, tell me, like, how was uh, working on, like, a big project like that? How how was that, like, compared to, like, an independent, like, project like your own or someone else's? Yeah, I mean, working on the last two Avengers movies, so it would have been Infinity War and Endgame. Well, we shot those movies back to back in Atlanta. And I moved to Atlanta for about a year and a half. And we shot for pretty much 180 days straight. You know, I think there was one or two hiatuses built in, but you know, you see the full cycle of life basically when you're shooting for that long. And I I wouldn't recommend it for anyone necessarily. I don't think it's the healthiest, but certainly you look at the product in the end and it feels very rewarding. But when you're talking about movies of that scale, you know, Marvel has people that are operating at sort of the top of their game you know they have production designers and you know different you know, editors and all dps and everybody that sort of cycles through their system i mean as a filmmaker you do have a chance to craft the movie and choose who you like but they have very you know competent and familiar people that they can pair you with as well and uh, you're going in there and it's very much sort of a system very tried and true they very much know what they're doing there's less experimenting that you might find on an indie film set. And you're also walking on set in very basic terms. Sometimes you're going onto a stage where you're surrounded in green screen the whole day. And, you know, the only things that are practical is what the actor's immediately interacting with. And that obviously you can get some fatigue from staring at green screen. And as an actor, and I think as a filmmaker, you have to use your imagination a lot more. You know, I, I think filmmakers really do bring bring something special to each one of those Marvel films, but a lot, Marvel isn't going to let you fail. Whereas I think in the indie film world, unless you have a strong producer, you're on your own, you know, a strong producer can can set up some sort of fail safes, basically. But, you know, in the indie film world, there's a little bit of, I guess, more magic. There's a little bit more of experimenting and finding things as you go along. 
And, you know, there's, I don't know, definitely when I'm on a set of my own, I feel a lot more weight on my shoulders than when you're in the Marvel system where there's so many people watching everybody's back. So, you know, they both have their own sort of benefits and, you know, a super valuable experience being on those film sets. It's a huge learning experience. Like, I totally agree. Like, I, well, the reason why I love independent films so much is that, like, you totally feel like the heartbeat of the act of the director, the producer, just because they've been working on it for years and years, and it finally comes to fruition. And like compared to like a big Marvel set, it like you said, it's like it's manufactured. Like you said, they're not going to let you fail. But like my question for you is like how like how did it feel to like work, especially on something like popular as Endgame and mm-hmm. something that's ending like this huge, massive like I can't think of like the last time like something like this has been done like how did it feel to like work on something that's ending like this 10 film like i guess you wouldn't call it a trilogy but i don't know what you call it but uh how did, how did it feel to like work on something like that you know it's it's tough it's ultimately it's hugely rewarding of course but you know when you're in it you sort of you lose sight of the end goal and you know the thing that gives you chills is people's responses and being able to witness fans and audiences seeing that movie and at the same time as you and being in a packed theater when they for the cheerworthy moments or for you know the emotional moments there really is nothing like it and of course right now we're not in an environment where we can experience that but uh, you know I think that there is a huge benefit to the theatrical experience and those Marvel films are directly suited to to be in that environment and it, it's pretty amazing and that kind of reminds you why you do everything honestly is to just just hear people's reaction but when you're in the cycle of working 180 days straight you lose lose track of it and in a sort of a very unromantic way it does become like a job mm-hmm. you know and i think that can happen to people is where you know you're working in the film industry and it loses its magic but then like i said when you're screening it for people the magic is right there again and it you know it was it was amazing it did you at the end you really did feel the weight of everything and i think that the russos did first of all they had an impossible job to do and i think they did it in an amazing way of course i'm drinking my like their Kool-Aid here but they're really really talented guys really amazing filmmakers and i'm not sure that anybody could have done it quite as well as they did i they, it was quite a feat you know yeah, uh, like when I first found out that like the Russo brothers were, they started out with Winter Soldier, and you mm-hmm. you worked on that one too. Uh, like the Russo brothers are so, I like the way they treat like a film. It's so grounded. I love the way they ground it like so much, and just uh, I don't know. Like I guess I'm drinking their Kool Aid too, but I I love everything that basically they've worked on, and you've actually followed them like throughout pretty much most of their career, like working on community mm-hmm. and uh, they actually produced your short film leader of the pack. And did they produce a uh, obituary burglars or no, uh, I have a web, web series that they also executive produced. Oh yeah. Mother, mother lover. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. The short lived yum yum F channel. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like what, what was it like to meet them? And also just uh, obviously you're used to, helping them out but like what was it like when you've got that phone call or text when 
they were like, let's produce, let, let's produce Ari's content. And you're like, what? I mean, it's, I'll just like give you sort of a twofold answer to that. You know, I first started off my career uh, working in the NBC page program. Mm-hmm. It was early on. It was like sort of during the writer's strike in 2007, at the end of 2007. And I had friends who were in the NBC page program. So I, I got a job there and it, it quickly became a job as an assistant in comedy development at NBC. And I was working on Parks and Rec and The Office and, and 30 Rock. And then at that time, Pilot Call Community was being developed, and that's sort of how I met the Russos. And I was working for the executive who covered Community, and so for the, through the first season, I heard the guys on the phone giving, you know, talking about the the scripts and talking about the cuts, and my executive giving notes, and just hearing these guys really intelligently talk about character and story and thematics in a way that I hadn't really heard before. And I knew that I had been, I was getting sick of sort of the NBC corporate system. It was just a little too corporate for me and I wanted to get closer to the product. And I just sort of set my sights on those guys. I was already a huge fan of Arrested Development. And basically what I did was I reached out to their former assistant and I would take her out to drinks once every few weeks just to sort of keep keep my name fresh in her mind. And I told her early on, I wanted the job as soon as she either got promoted or she decided to move on. And she was like, yeah, something might happen. They're talking about it. And I think I probably took her out to drinks probably six, seven months straight before she actually did get promoted. And the first person they called was me. And it was, I mean, it kind of made my life. Obviously, it changed the course of my career totally because 10 years later, I'm producing for them. And I'm now, you know, senior vice president of production at their production company. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that call was huge. And early on, I sort of, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I, you know, the the first step was becoming their assistant. And then the next step was, all right, well, what do I want to do in this industry? I wasn't one of those people early on who knew, oh, I definitely want to write, or I definitely want to direct, you know, I think I was a little bit afraid to admit to myself that I wanted to do those things and put myself out there. And so, you know, I think I was more comfortable in a way producing other people's work or thinking about myself as more of a manager of talent than the talent themselves. And uh, through working with the Russos, I decided to just sort of try my hand at it. And I wanted to sort of capitalize on the relationships I built through that second season of Community when I first started working with the Russos. And so I talked to Danny Pudi and he was interested in working with me when I pitched him the, the idea for Leader of the Pack. And I knew that having the Russos name attached would mean more to everybody than just, you know, some nobody who who I was at the time. And the guys were super gracious about not only attaching their names, but also helping me uh, to fund the film. So it was, you know, a really pivotal point in my career where I got to feel what it was like to be on set calling the shots and realize, hey, I really love this. And also to have those guys mentoring me and helping me, uh, you know, get the best product. That's really great. Like, I I think that what you said that was important there is that you... Like you said, like multiple times that you you didn't really know what you want to do. And I'm kind of in the same boat of just like, like I went to school like for video and just like, I'm kind of, I like I'm doing this podcast like here and there. And like, like I'm sort of don't really know like how to break in. Like we've done like sort of videos like it's and stuff like that. And then like just later, like I started branching out into doing like videos for like, like jump bikes. I'm not sure if you've like heard of those in Los Angeles and just kind of I feel like the most important thing that like when I start like getting new projects like that is like networking like is such a huge part of what we do on a on like on a regular basis just because it's like if like you said you if you didn't uh take out like uh this girl for drinks and that worked with the Russos and she didn't like 
oh, this is Ari? I'm like, and just kind of have like your name like out there. You probably wouldn't have gotten that call. And just like, if you were just, I don't know. It's like networking is so important in just like everything that we do. Yeah, I mean, I kind of got it in my head. And, you know, I hadn't really done this previously, but I was like, these are the guys to work for. I don't know if I had a sense of sort of how much their stock would rise over the course of the years working with them. But mm-hmm. I just knew I liked their sensibilities. I thought they were really smart. And they were like super friendly. They were family men, their values were in check. And I was like, yeah, this is if I'm going to model myself after anybody in this industry, it's, it's these guys. And because they're both good at their job. And they understand the value of sort of family and, you know, relationships. Obviously, that worked out really well, because they've just their career skyrocketed. Yeah, like I actually couldn't imagine like if I went back like 10 years ago, like when the Russos were developing like Arrested Development, I would never have guessed that they would have directed like three of the probably the best Marvel Cinematic Universe films. But Mm -hmm. like, I knew that they could just because like you said, they're like, they were so good at like building character and just like grounding like all these characters and make everything real. But like you said, you originally started like on Community and like you heard them talking about characters. Like what was it like? Community is one of my favorite shows. Like Mm -hmm. it's hands down. I can't watch like a single NBC show anymore without kind of wishing Community was back on the air. What was it like? working on community during probably its best season season two like Mm -hmm. what was it like working with them and just kind of seeing i think you kind of already explained them like them talking about characters but like just working on community season two we didn't even know at the time that it was going to be looked back upon as sort of a cult favorite and the russell sort of had that going throughout their career in, in in television because the rest of development is looked back you know maybe now it's looked back in retrospect as a classic comedy but at the time it was critically acclaimed but fans didn't necessarily find it for a while until it was on you know netflix or on dvd mm-hmm. and community was a bit the same it was it was a bit of a cult favorite some fans found it but it was never super high in the ratings like it never did as well as 30 rock or the office or or any of those shows but you know they really that cast was everybody knows how amazingly popular don glover's become and allison brie and gillian jacobs and danny pudi and joel McHale. it's a pretty supremely and jim rash talented cast and obviously chevy chase as well you know and you you could feel it on set you know the way things and it was a, it was a really happy set. Everybody was glad to be there. The hours were long, but people were thankful, you know. And it was, you know, obviously Dan Harmon's a bit of a creative genius. He's got some of his own problems that have been, you know, publicized in different varieties. But he's pretty brilliant. And then to have him and the Russos in the same room together, it's just to be able to study those minds is was kind of unique. And I remember second season was when things started to take a turn. It really became a show that would sort of satirize genre in different ways and it was just like okay well what are they going to satirize this week is it going to be a scorsese film is it going to be the right stuff you know what's it going to be and it just kind of felt like there was some magic happening Mm -hmm. yeah i definitely agree with you season two is like it like it definitely hit its peak and kind of knew like what kind of show it wanted to be like my favorite episode from that season is is the dungeons and dragons episode oh yeah just because i played dungeons and dragons like all throughout high school and just like and uh hearing that it got taken off netflix just for the fact that of ken john's character like did you hear about that or i didn't i didn't hear about it like it got taken off netflix because of like the supposed like blackface of Uh, like like ken jong like saying he was a dark elf which oh geez i did not hear about that that's i mean that's that's a little bit crazy yeah 
it, it's it's a little crazy just because like if you watch the episode and see like how crazy Ken Chong was like in that show like he obviously the show obviously knew where uh what what they were doing with that and they're satirizing like blackface and just saying like this is a horrible thing right and but, no, it's, it's I don't know why they have to like dumb things down to the the lowest common denominator like you know for every audience member let things sort of exist on their own and be smart but yeah i understand like netflix is kind of walking like that thin line especially with like what's happening in 2020 but Mm -hmm. like they obviously trying to protect their brand as much as possible especially when you're that big sure i don't know yeah it's censorship just uh, i've just never been a big fan of that because you're silencing creators and whether like that creator is good or bad i just feel like I don't know. Censorship is just tightrope to. It's uh, a little too too pronged in a way because you feel like you know let let the audience trust that the audience is smart enough to be able to figure them out it out for themselves. But the other side of the coin is, well, what about the audience that isn't smart enough and and takes it and either manipulates your words into something you never intended or acts on something based upon how they spin spin your words or your messages and. You know, obviously that's where it can, can become dangerous, but it's a, a dangerous slope to just start censoring things, especially creative content, really. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what I kind of find scary, like especially when we move kind of move a more digital age, especially with like uh, COVID-19, like theaters are closed and we're watching most of our content on Netflix. I'm really glad that I own like community on Blu-ray just because... Mm. I will always have like all those episodes and I don't know, I can't even imagine like Netflix saying like, Oh, you like this movie and we're just going to take it away from you because we lost the license or someone doesn't like it. And it's just like, I don't know. I think that's just a dangerous world that we could potentially be living in. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, you, you talked a little bit about like the theater experience and especially like in 2020 theaters are, are closing like how did as like a film fan and also like a creator like how does that how does that make you feel just like i know for me going to the theater it's like church for me mm-hmm. like i've never been like i've been religious like growing up but like growing older i've just kind of become a little bit more agnostic like towards it and mm-hmm. like i always go like sunday morning like to go watch like go watch a film and like i love being in the theater alone because i could like focus on my thoughts but and it's hard for me to like watch like like a film like in quarantine just because there's so many distractions with like your phone. But like, what do you what do you think about like the new way of watching cinema? Yeah, it's tough. Obviously, the Russos are doing their next film directly for Netflix. We have a really great relationship with Netflix. Netflix is willing to put sort of their money where their mouth is and, and make quality content, and they're not gonna skimpy on on the money and they're very supportive and creatively they're they don't get in your way but they're they're also very helpful and i don't i don't think there can be better partners to be honest but then again i'm i'm the kind of guy who, who grew up like you in in the movie theater and it was a, sort of a very pivotal and influential part of my like sort of formative years and every monday from sixth grade through the end of high school my senior year I would go to the movie theater with my grandfather. We would go out to dinner and we would go to the movies. And I saw a lot of bad things. I saw a lot of good things. And I saw a lot of things in between. But it was sort of my film education. And 
I, if I was sick, I would still go no matter what was going on. I mean, it was, it was, you know, rain or shine. I would go to the movies with him and it was what I had to look forward to every Monday. And for me, that experience like you is, is a bit holy. And now I understand in this new landscape, some things don't necessarily belong in the theaters, and especially as we reach this divide where the only things that are really opening and theatrically and, and can, can sort of make their box office are Marvel films or horror films. And, you know, it's the rare original IP that can break through uh, the noise and get an audience. But I do think that the theater and the theatrical experience is special. There are movies that need to be watched with other people, and there are movies that need to be watched on a big screen and with perfect sound, and there are movies that need to be watched as the filmmaker intended. And I hope that there's there's always a, a venue to watch those. You know, I hope that people like Quentin Tarantino still own theaters and promote um, the theatrical experience, and that Chris Nolan also does the same. But that being said, I don't have anything against the streamers. I I, I love what they're doing. I love that they've given sort of a new platform to indie voices and for people that maybe their films wouldn't necessarily work uh, in the theater, but they work really great streaming. So I think both can exist, but I think both have to exist. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Like there's, there's been numerous shows that like I watched like on uh, during quarantine that I wouldn't necessarily watched in the theater, but I, like I'm glad that like Apple, like on Apple TV plus like greenlit Ted Lasso, like, cause I wouldn't mm-hmm. have imagined like seeing that like on a network NBC or Fox or, or, or even like, I don't know, I guess like your, your, your film extraction, like I could, mm-hmm. I could see like something like in the theaters, but that's something that was a pretty low budget film, right? Wasn't it? Or it was, you know, it was probably mid-level between 60 and 70. Mm-hmm. So for a big action film, it was on the, on the, the lower end, but it had a healthy enough budget. Mm-hmm. You shot that like pretty small cameras, right? Like extraction. We shot on the. I think we shot on the the Aerie, the Alexa. Oh, okay. But you know that for that film, it's it's a bit of a throwback to the the old school action films. You know, in the sense that practical effects heavy, and we wanted to immerse the audience in these sort of amazing foreign locations, but for the fights to be real very practical like our director was a stunt coordinator became a second unit director who this was his feature film debut and you know the script was really well done written by joe russo but it 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 didn't sort of reinvent the wheel you know i think the most interesting thing was the sort of the way that the story is specifically the main character chris hemsworth plays tyler rake how his evolution and his sort of the secret to his character is rolled out it's done in a bit of a reverse order where you don't really know understand what's motivating him early on but you find out as the story goes on and he's you know physically is very strong emotionally he's very weak um so it's, it's sort of a nuanced character and i think the relationship with the boy is is interesting and something we haven't seen before and you know but i think there's always going to be an audience for those kinds of big action spectacle films and people people like those films that you really you feel each punch and it's not it's not a VFX heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my favorite part about like extraction is that it was I'm not sure like maybe you can shed some light on this, but it was like the one take like mm-hmm. shot. Like was that shot entirely like in one take or the action sequence, I mean? No. It's, you know, it's meant to look like 13 minutes of one take, but there are stitches. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'd have mm-hmm. Desert director, director, I don't remember how many stitches are, are in it, but we shot that sequence over the course of about two weeks in the streets of India. And it was, 
you know, it looks amazing on screen, but that's because of how much prep was done, choreographing the stunts and, and practicing the camera movements. And a, a lot of that was shot by the director, actually, because he would strap himself to the front of a buggy or a moving car and he would unstrap himself and run up with the, he's very physical because he used to be a stunt, stunt man. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that was sort of painstakingly prepped uh, in advance. And <clears throat> I will tell you that we are working on the second uh, extraction film right now, which uh, we'll hope to be shooting potentially next summer. And we're going to try and one up that whole sequence. Nice. I'm anxiously looking forward to that because that's what probably wouldn't. That came out like right at the start of quarantine, right? So it was yeah, kind of April 24th. So we sort of had a captive audience, but we were really happy with how people responded to it. Yeah, it's it's probably one of my favorite action films like this year, and I, like I'm I'm just so proud of you, Ari, for just like working on like all of these different types of projects. I, I'm just anxiously like waiting for you to like. I know Sam Hargrave, like the director of Extraction, like you, you said he had his debut. I'm just anxiously like waiting for your feature film debut. Like, do do you see <laughs> that happening? Right. Do you see that happening like within the next year or so? Or do you want to like? Something to look forward to? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to jinx it. I'm making strides. I have a writing directing partner who I've been working with lately. We've been doing horror films, short films. We have one that uh, came out like two years ago on Alter. It's called The Bride. And then we have a new one that's been making the festival circuit called The Internet Kills, which is a bit of a throwback, but it's also a techno horror. Uh, that's a pretty fun one. We say it's sort of like Euphoria meets The Ring. So. We've been practicing, that is to say, and we've got two features. Well, one that we've written and one that we've rewritten for my company that we're, we're trying to attach ourselves as directors on. And it's also a horror feature. And, you know, it's looking good, but we nothing's set in stone yet. And, you know, with filmmaking, it's not, it's not real till you step on set. So and we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed and hoping that it could go quarter one of, of next year, which would mean we'd be in production really quickly. But like I said, you never can tell with these things. Yeah, especially with uh, with COVID. But my fingers and toes are are all are all crossed for you, Ari. Because I, I, I can't wait. I just I, I can't wait to see like Mosul that's coming out on November twenty sixth, and just like every, anything that's uh, that you're attached to. I always I, I just want to consume just because I I, lo- I love your eye for like for film and cinema, and I feel like we kind of kind of have like the same aspect of like what we want in like a film and mm-hmm. like what entertains us so i'm just excited for you and just like and just hopefully like COVID 19 like you're staying safe like on productions that you're working on and stuff like that and just yeah yeah we, uh, we're doing we're in prep for the russo's next movie gray man right now and that we have intense COVID protocols in place you know I'm not even on set. Uh, well, we haven't started shooting yet, but I'm not in the off in the film office, uh, the production office, that often. But I do get tested once a week in case I have to interact with anybody. So uh, they're taking every precaution on that film, and I mean that one's going to be amazing. It's another big Netflix action film starring Chris Evans and Ryan Gosling. But uh, with Mosul, it's that one is really interesting for my company because it's the first one we did right out of the gate, and. It's a movie that is all in Arabic and it stars all Middle Eastern actors. And the interesting thing about that is it's it's sort of, it can play like a, an Iraqi Dirty Dozen, a 90 minute Iraqi Dirty Dozen. And it's, you know, about a, a, a band of, um, a militia of 12 men who formed the Iraqi SWAT team during the fall of, of ISIS in Mosul, Iraq. And we sort of 
follow them on the course over the course of a mission, starting to realize sort of what drives them. And it's local heroes taking back the city for themselves and, and trying to rid the city of evil in a very like sort of basic sense. It's, it's humanity trying to prevail. And so I think it's a really beautiful film and one that I'm proud of because while other films can be more just entertainment and popcorn films just to help you escape, this film is, it feels like it needs to be seen and it, it feels like it's really saying something. Yeah, I've read the uh, the logline for, for Mosul and I was just like, this sounds like it has so much heart and just like, as I keep saying this word, but just grounded and just like, it's so important to like see, to see like a filmmaker like you, like tell like a story. Like I'm I'm sure like it's, like these characters are like a little bit Hollywoodized just to make it a little bit entertaining. But mm-hmm. most of these characters are, I would say are real. So it's mm-hmm. like, it, it's interesting to see like a filmmaker, like you just kind of like tell like their story and just, and just make it a people aware that watch like this film on Netflix know that people like this, like exist and just like that care about people. But yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because we've seen the Americanized version of this film, but we haven't seen it from the Iraqi point of view. And that's hopefully we're doing it justice by telling the story and, and shedding a light on it. But, you know, I think the most encouraging thing was after we were done was to hear the actors talk about how important this film is and how meaningful it, it was for them to be a part of it. And it's like, if, if we can just capture a little bit of that and, you know, other people from Iraq or, or the Middle East can feel the same way, then we, we've really done our job. Yeah. So what what was it like to uh, a film with like all like Arabic and Iraqi soldiers? Because I'm sure was there like a, a language barrier? Like, did you have like a translator like on, on set? Yeah, we had a couple translators. One of our EPs was this Iraqi filmmaker called Mohammed El Daraji. And he was helping us every step of the way and we would weigh in on whether we're being accurate and true to the region. And from a storytelling point, if things felt felt accurate and we had people we had a lot of multilingual people on set who and the director himself was an american the director was this, the same guy who wrote the script as well so a lot of you know a lot of the guys could understand english but then some of them had to go you know he had to direct them through a translator and you know he would have to there was a lot of trusting but then there were a lot of experts in their fields on set so it felt special in that way as well but it was definitely a, a tough movie but i i'm very proud of it yeah well, I, I, I can't wait to see it on November 26th. Yeah, I don't want to hold you up too much. So I guess I'll like start closing out episode 20. But uh, is there anything that you want to like promote or just like words of wisdom for like for people listening or and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I think people are familiar with the Russos and maybe even on a smaller scale, what kinds of things that I've been working on. But I think Mosul is, is very different. And it's also it's something we're very proud of. And I think the Russo's next movie that is in post and is going to be coming out on, on Apple, I think in the new year, Cherry is falls in that category too, where it's you know, more of an art piece and, and it's got a lot of commentary on where we're at uh, in the current state of the world. And I think those are just as important and we're really proud to be able to show that range at our company. So those are, those are two films that I'm really excited for people to see. And then I guess from a, a words of advice point of view, you know, one thing I didn't have like, I've had great mentors through my career, but I've never had that sort of like sentence or one word, two word kind of thing that inspired me or or that I could relay to to other people. But I think one thing that I've realized over the past few years is never be afraid to ask for something, you know, always be cognizant of who you're asking and when, but never be afraid to put yourself out there and ask for something that you want. And then the other thing is, you know, 
stay tenacious. Like if you find something, go after it full on. You know, I think that's the only reason why I ended up working with the Russos and why I am where I where I am. And I got a bug in me where I was just like, I have to work for these guys. And so follow your gut instinct. And if it's telling you got to do something, you got to do it and you got to find every way to, to make it so. Amen to like everything that you just said. I like when I first started this podcast, like I knew that like I had like all the time in the world just because of quarantine. So I was just gonna like I knew like asking like people like be on the podcast, like I was going to be nervous. But what's the worst thing they could say? No. Like, I feel like to add on to that is like, you got to be like, okay with rejection. Mm-hmm. Just because I know, like, for the longest time, like I struggled with that. Now I just like now I'm just so used to it, where it's just like, most of the time, it's like a, a yes, and, and stuff like that. Like, when I asked you to on this podcast, ever, you just said, sure, man, so gracious to you that you're able to be on and I was able to have this have this talk with you especially of course I mean I, I was happy to do it I you know remember uh, you know interacting fondly with you back at the film festivals and of course we've stayed in touch here and there over the years and you know you're just a good guy very focused and you know I'm proud of you as well and it's just awesome that you're doing this and I think often people are always happy to come on and talk about themselves too and especially when you have good questions like the ones you've been asking it's it's a pleasure well, th- thank you, Ari, and I-, I wish you I wish you all the best like with your company and like the the projects that you have going forward. And I, whenever when I saw like your name, like associate producer, like on the Avengers Endgame or just anything like on Community, like production assistant, I was always happy for you. And like, I just can't wait to see like directed by Ari Costa. Hopefully, we'll be sitting in a theater when I see that. But uh, if I'm sitting at home, uh, I'll still be happy to see that. So. Well, yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah, hopefully soon. Yeah, so cr- fingers crossed. Thank you for joining me. And uh, everyone everyone, go see Mosul on November 26th on Netflix. I believe it's everywhere, right? Yeah. Everywhere. Okay, so check that out. And then I guess I'll, I'll link your Vimeo page in, in the description. Okay. Because uh, cool. like, you have some of your short films there. Thank you for joining me, Ari. And uh, we are signing off. Thank you.